We began this conversation back in episode 83 when we began to explore the topic of medical bankruptcy with our friend and guest, Roger Jansen. Today is part two of a three-part series on the medical bankruptcy topic with my friend and attorney, Ray Noble. In this episode, we deep dive into everything you need to know now about estate planning and how what you do today significantly can impact those you love tomorrow. Ray also practices bankruptcy law, so we pick up on the open questions left to explore in our episode with Roger Jansen and discuss options that can and should be considered when facing unforeseen medical bills and burdensome healthcare expenses. Ray's a friend. He's also a neighbor and the one that Michelle and I trust the most as our lawyer and counselor. My hope is that this conversation empowers you. There was so much I personally did not know, and I'm eager to share it with you, the best and brightest. Big things continue to happen here at Healthcare 360, so please continue to provide your feedback and suggestions as you navigate a recently updated website at scottyburgess.com. There is so much coming down the line, and soon it will all be revealed. If you're an Apple Podcast listener, please take a moment and write us a review, as reviews are the lifeblood to podcast growth and longevity. A positive review pushes Healthcare 360 to the top and brings these conversations to those who need it most. Have a topic to bring to the nation? Go to scottyburgess.com and schedule a meeting with me personally. If Facebook is more convenient, you can reach me at my Facebook community page at scottyburgess.com. Click on the Messenger chat bubble on the lower right-hand corner of the page, and let's have some fun. Now, let's jump into this conversation with my friend Ray Noble, and as always, thanks for listening. Welcome back to the episode of Healthcare 360. Uh, we have a friend in front of us today. He's also a neighbor. He lives right down the street. So we're happy to introduce Ray Noble. Ray does estate planning. We talked about wills, wills and testaments, burial insurance, all the things that we don't like to talk about, but is essential. They're essential because it can really jack up your life after a death of something unexpected happens, and it just needs to be approached that way in a responsible manner. Dude, thank you. Appreciate you being here, man. Thank you, Scott. Thank you for having me on the show. You're welcome. So why don't you kind of guide us through like, what's up? What don't we know? I would actually, sure. what I would like to start with is what people don't know about estate planning that affect them the most. Right. And have they known then or now what they should have known then? <laughs> well, unfortunately, like? many times they won't know because they have already passed away and it's their kids that now are trying to clean up the mess that their parents should have done beforehand. Right. Everyone thinks that they need a will. Listen to movies, you watch TV, and everyone's like, oh, you're in my will. You're not in my will. But a will just means... You know how many arguments that will say? <laughs> Why ain't I in your will, man? <laughs> I know, exactly. It's like, oh, put me in your will. That, that's literally the last thing you want because a will just means you're going to probate. Your kids are going to have to hire an attorney and put your will in the public records, and then a judge decides... Who gets what? Everything is a public record, and it takes a lot of time and, unfortunately, money, too. Where in the state of Florida, the statutory rate that an attorney gets for mm-hmm. probating a will is 3.5%. And most people, they may have a few hundred thousand dollars in an equities account, a 401k, all stuff that's going through probate. So, you know, it's easy. It could be a million bucks. That's $35,000 that your children will not get because it's going to the attorneys. Wow. So the better choice, instead of having just your standard will, is having a will, but saying that everything in your will goes to a revocable trust. A revocable trust is a living document that survives your death. Mm -hmm. So when you are alive, you are both the beneficiary and the trustee. 
-hmm. So you can have a bank account, you can own property in the name of the Burgess family revocable trust or Scott Burgess revocable trust, and you can do whatever you want with that. So it's literally like having a bank account in your name, but it's in the revocable trust. But the beauty of it is when you pass away, it distributes the assets the way that you want them to go outside of probate. So if you are worried about you have four daughters and if, God forbid, you and your wife pass away early, you know, you may not want your four daughters getting all your assets at 18 years old. Right. You can put provisions in there that up until they're 30, you can have your sister be the trustee of their assets to decide what they get. And she has a discretion. And then at age 30, they can get it. You can put whatever you want in it. But the most important thing from a cost standpoint, it costs a little bit more to do the revocable trust than just a will. Mm -hmm. But then your kids aren't paying attorneys three and a half percent because there's nothing to probate. It stays in the revocable trust. And you can make provisions in the trust where it survives generations. Under Florida law, you can have a trust that is a living document for 360 years. So oh, I want to stop there for sure. real quick. You keep talking about Florida, but can you work outside of Florida as well? Because there's going to be some people who listen to this who are outside the Florida yes, state. I, yeah, I can work in in all 50 states with uh, okay. with the state planning. That's important because when we put the all the podcast notes together, we want to let them know that they can reach out sure, anywhere sure. they live. And also, listen, I have colleagues all throughout the United States. So if there's something that I can't do, I can recommend someone that can do the uh, estate planning if Perfect. there's a nuance with, say, you know, New Jersey law or Georgia law that I I may not know. Right. But good point on that. So, but back to the revocable trust. So basically it allows a seamless transition of your assets. It doesn't go into court. It saves your beneficiaries money and you can put provisions in there on who gets what, when they get what, and also for your beneficiaries, it acts as asset protection. Where if God forbid, if you pass away, and your 20-year-old daughter inherits $200,000. If she gets in an accident, if she uh, gets sued, if she gets married and then gets a divorce, that $200,000, the ex-spouse could get it, a person that sues you in a car accident can get it. But if it's in the revocable trust, it's not her money. Mm. So therefore, if she makes a bad financial decision and borrows $50,000 and can't pay it back, they can't get that money. If she gets in a car accident and has low insurance and she caused a million dollars worth of damage, they can't go after that money. So not only – What about college loans though? Because college loans are a big hot topic of debate that you can't claim bankruptcy against them. So are they able to get those funds back through the revocable trust? Well, the thing with college loans, it's kind of interesting. It's kind of a double-sided sword where, yes, as of now with bankruptcy law, you can't get rid of student loans unless Mm -hmm. it's literally like a worst-case scenario. There was a federal judge that said, listen, as long as you can be a greeter at Walmart – you have to pay back your student loans. So literally, if you have the qualifications to be a greeter at Walmart, you will not be able to discharge your student loan debts in bankruptcy. So the revocable trust is not exempt from that? Well, no, no. The revocable trust is because that's not your money. Uh Remember, if you set it up correctly Mm -hmm. and she doesn't have access to that, it's in a trustee, a bank's a trustee or your sister or another family member. That's not considered her money. So even if she gets sued, but the thing is with student loans, federal loans, they almost never sue you. 
So you will never really get a judgment against you. Mm-hmm. They can garnish your wages, but there's a difference because there's not a judgment against you. But even if you, for example, get a private student loan and they do sue you and you get a judgment for $100,000 for student mm-hmm. loans that you didn't pay back, they can't get that from the revocable trust if it's set up properly. So I had something here about death tax that popped up in my head as well. How is a revocable trust? So does that death tax come from the revocable trust? How does that whole thing work? That's an interesting point. As of now, most people don't have to worry about a death tax because under the past administration, uh, the Trump administration, it was about $6.75 million per person. Double that as a married couple. So unless a family had more than $13.5 million, there would be zero death tax. However, the Biden administration is thinking about lowering it down to a million dollars which many families would be well over a million dollars, and then you would have to pay that. And unfortunately, the revocable trust does not help out with the death tax. You would need to do more complicated and sophisticated estate planning, like creating an irrevocable trust, creating offshore LLCs, and doing things to minimize your net worth at the time you're doing it, and then Mm -hmm. allowing it to grow. And then when you pass away, it's still considered under the threshold. So that's a good question because we're kind of in a limbo right now. Most families don't have over 13 million bucks, so it's, it's a non-issue. Mm-hmm. But if the Senate and Congress pass laws that bring it down to a million bucks, there's going to be some major issues. Now, what about like clawbacks, grandfathered in, if you will? So th- well, that's that, the that advantage of an irrevocable trust, where if you do an irrevocable trust and you get rid of your assets, because an irrevocable trust means that you who created it, you don't have access to that money anymore. Mm -hmm. As opposed to a revocable trust, where during your lifetime, you still have access to that money. So it's still your money. So it would still be under that current $6.75 million cap. Right. So if you want to do more sophisticated planning, if you're worried about, you know, hey, we got a Democratic Senate, we got a Democratic Congress, we got a Democratic president, someone's going to have to pay the piper for all the money that they're giving away. And they may go after the people that have millions of dollars whose parents pass away. So you may want to do more sophisticated estate planning by getting that out of your name now. And then it's kind of like your grandfathered in. So then you won't have to worry about if the estate tax goes back to a million bucks, then you're you're covered. What would you do in that situation right now, knowing what you know? If I was a family and I had several million dollars, I would do both. I would do a revocable trust. You need to do a revocable trust to avoid probate. But I would also do more sophisticated estate planning and do an irrevocable trust to make sure that if two, three, four years from now, the death tax is lowered to a million or $2 million, your beneficiaries are covered because that is a high death tax, like 40%. Yeah, right. That's something that I would consider as well. Wow, wow, wow. All right, so I'm going to throw a scenario at you. Sure. So this is what Michelle and I are thinking right now. (laughs) We, we're not going to use names, of course, because someone's going to ask us, why aren't we in your estate plan? <laughs> right, right, right. Of course. Not, well, estate plan. <laughs> estate plan, right. So we okay. have adult, mm-hmm. A and B, okay? B is kind of like the outlier. Okay. So A is always going to be the primary. So in the event that Michelle and I pass away, okay. we have an immediate response. So that way the kids, because we're assuming right now that no one's 18, will put in, us in that scenario. Say, okay, what if they're... 18 or below mm-hmm. or 18 and above. Okay. All four of your kids are under 18. Okay. So right now that, that's a scenario. Okay. We have an immediate plan where person or adult A would come over and we have an immediate adult B 
So we have two people. There needs to be kind of a consensus mm-hmm. to how the, the funds are used. So that way it's not kind of like a dictatorship because we don't know if someone's going to have a mental breakdown or anything right, else. Right. So we want to have some reserves built in right, there right. to say, hey, what if? Then from there, the immediate response backs off and then another adult. So this is going to be adult A1. They're going to come in and they're going to be the primary custodian at this point. Okay. And then we're still going to have B to hold that balance. Mm-hmm. So that's how it's in our heads right now playing out. Mm-hmm. We have an immediate response. Something happens to us, whatever the trauma is. Someone comes over, kids are taking care of, everything's good. Someone's here to kind of keep orderly of what's going on. And I can only imagine right now the amount of passwords I need to write down. <laughs> to think it like access to my stuff, right? right, right, right I'm right. sure that's probably one of the biggest headaches. Too. Yeah, especially with like uh, cryptocurrency now where, uh, yeah. you know, a lot of people put a few thousand bucks in it a few years back and it's worth a small fortune and there's no way to access it because you don't have your passwords put away. And this is one of those things that, there's no sympathy with Bitcoin. If you've lost the password, you've lost the password. That's so it. in addition to having a will and a revocable trust, you should have a little like notebook or something on your computer that just has all the important passwords and other information that they would need. Yeah. We have to go back there, for, especially for the cryptocurrency stuff, because that's something new that we're every, yeah, not course. just I, but everyone else is going to be dabbling in as well. When looking up at that setup, so we have an immediate response, okay. adult A, with a secondary adult B and then go into the permanent custodian response, which is adult A1 and then B. Mm-hmm. Is that a good setup to start with or what's wrong with that? What's great with that? I mean, it sounds like it's a bit too complicated. What I would do is have one person that you trust that is the decision maker. And mm-hmm. you can, and that's the beauty of a revocable trust. Even if you don't want this person to have complete discretion, you can limit their discretionary abilities in the trust. You can say, listen, we're leaving this nest egg. You can use the interest or the dividends or whatever the investments are making for the health, education, maintenance, and support, but you can only use the principal for these certain things. If it's a healthcare crisis, if it's an accident or something like that. What some people do is they want to have two people in there. Mm -hmm. But the problem with two people is if it's a stalemate, one-to-one, what do you do? So then they have a tiebreaker. But I still think that the best thing is to have one sole decision maker, but limit their abilities through the trust where you're very specific as to what that trustee can do so even though they do have discretion, it's limited by the terms of the trust. Now, what if in that scenario, if they're the living expenses are based on the interest, mm-hmm. it's not covering everything? Well, that's why you really need to go to a you know experienced attorney to make sure that all bases that would are be covered. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, and then there's other things you can do in there where there's something called a trust protector mm-hmm. where – You can name a third party, when I mean a third party, someone that's like not a family member, like a close friend that can overlook the trust where Mm -hmm. if things are just need to be changed, like a a circumstance that you never nor your attorney ever thought would happen, they can go in there and change the terms of the trust. And remember, it's called a revocable trust because you can obviously revoke it while you're alive. Mm-hmm. So right now, Scott, you're a young guy, Michelle's a young woman, where your circumstances might not be where they are in 10 years. So we can create the revocable trust now, and then in 10 years, we can change whatever we want. 
Right. Well, so, this way everyone knows a little background too. We sure. did this, what, three years ago, four years ago, roughly? We got, yeah, kind of got started with the whole yeah, thing. Four or five years And ago. we're coming back to the table saying, hey, we need to change some things. Yes. And that's why we're sitting down again. Yeah, it's just having a solid foundation, a solid estate plan. Mm-hmm. And then it's very easy to just do codicils or just small amendments where you put them in there and then it's a seamless transition. Now, remind me, because I don't remember, because here's where I'm at in my life. If I'm not good at it or I'm an mm-hmm. expert at it, I'll start to dibble-dabble, but you're the expert. So what did we do the first time? The revocable? You did what I call the standard estate plan for a family. You had a pour-over will, and it's called a pour-over will because I said beforehand, you don't want just a will. You Mm -hmm. want a will to basically say that everything pours over into your revocable trust. So the beauty of that is, let's just say you come to my office and we set up everything but because you're not an attorney, you're, you know, you're not constantly thinking about putting things in a trust, and you obviously never know when you're going to pass away. Right. If you forget to put something into that trust, as long as you have a pour over will, that bank account, that piece of property, that car will pour over mm. into the revocable trust if it's set up properly. Yeah. So that's what we did for you, a pour over will. And then of course, we did a revocable trust. So we did a joint revocable trust. So it's yours and your wife's revocable trust. That mm-hmm. means both you and she are the grantors and the trustees. You can do whatever you want while you're living. Then whoever passes away first, the other person is the sole trustee and grantor. You mm-hmm. guys can do whatever you want. And then when you pass away, I don't recall the specific provisions that we put in there, but it was basically being divided into equal trust for your four children. And then, of course, you named other family members that would act as the trustees mm-hmm. up until they reach a certain age. Right, right, right. Okay. So, and then you can always go back and change it if you were like, you know what? I've made some decent money. I want to, instead of giving it all to my four children, I want to give it to a charity. You can put money in for charity. You can put it in for good friends. I've even created pet trust. I've had families that (laughs) they never had kids and literally they had nine cats and they literally wanted to leave $150,000 to their cats. So, I mean, you can really do whatever you want to do. (laughs) That's some high grade food, man. My gosh. It usually just means that the trustee of that trust may have to buy a Corvette to bring the cat to the vet, you know, since the, yeah, yeah, that would yeah. be for the cat's health education maintenance. No so you really have to watch the trustee in those situations because obviously the cat can't complain. And uh, many times the trustee is going to use that money for his his or her own benefit. Right. And as long as it has a tangential relationship to the cat. I have two kind of spinoffs to that sure. one. So on the principal side, is there a list, a quick list, mm-hmm. or I mean, every family is different, every dynamics is going to be a little bit different, of what that principal will cover? So for example, home, different automobiles, or different student loans, yeah. or something like that. And what's coming to mind for me right now is when my father passed away, he had, uh, I think, a Ford Explorer, for example. Okay. And it was a lease, or a lease to own. We called them and said, hey, our father had passed away. And they said, would you like to pick up the loans? We said, no, thank you. They came over, they picked up the car. Right. So how does all that work out? Like, how do you position yourself to make sure that you're not picking up someone else's debt that was unexpected? Or, for example, like use cryptocurrency where if you don't have the password and they have a nest egg, they paid $1,000 and now it's worth $600,000. Right, right. But you have no access to it. But what if it's a reverse of that? What if someone has a lot of debt or a lien on them? Do you also Mm -hmm. absorb that? That's a good question. Usually... 
most debt is kind of what I call like commercial bank debt where you have a car that's upside down and the person passes away and it's worth $10,000 less than what you owe on it. In that circumstance, the banker usually will just come pick up the car and not put a claim against the estate. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, a lot of it is credit card debt, too. And credit cards, they will put a claim into an estate, but then the the personal representative just has to object to it. And then if you object to a claim, then that creditor has 30 days to file a lawsuit. But from my experience... If it's a credit card, if it's a bank, they never file a lawsuit because it's just not worth their time because most people don't have that much money in their estate. The realtor who sold us this house Uh told me about that exact same scenario. And she said that they called. She kept saying, no, no, no. They didn't know the debt was there. Yeah. And they kept just like badgering her. They didn't do anything, but eventually it went away. That's funny how you mentioned 30 days. I said, how long were they going on for? She's like, at least like a month or so. Right, right, right. (laughs) So, but there is an issue is if a disgruntled family member is owed money, if an arch enemy was, Mm. you know, is owed money, then you may have to worry about fighting that person in court. But remember, they still have to prove the debt. You know, they still have to go through the same routine that any other creditor would have to do in court and you would have the same objections as well. If it gets to that point, those would usually just settle. What about small businesses and stuff like that? A lot of families have small businesses. Right. And there's a lot of credit. I mean, I know you can say, okay, that's the LLC. This is the family. You can separate them. But yeah. do they merge sometimes? Well, I mean, that's a good question over? because a lot of people, you know, they won't use attorneys to set up an LLC because they're like, why do I need an attorney? I can just go on Well, in Florida, it's sunbiz.org, or most states have uh, a website that you can pay 150 bucks and create an LLC. Yeah, that's the easy part. You're not paying an attorney to go onto a website to, Mm -hmm. to pay 150 bucks. You're paying an attorney to create an operating agreement. And within that, if it's a well-drafted operating agreement, it has business succession planning. So if you and your wife and also someone else and his wife own a company together, you put provisions in there like, well, what if the other person gets divorced? You know, I don't want to be partners with his wife because I'm partners with him. Mm-hmm. You know, so you can put provisions in there. What if he passes away? You have an opportunity to buy his portion of the business at X price and you put X prices determined. What if this person files bankruptcy? You know, we don't want this LLC to be part of the bankruptcy. So that's why you go to an attorney when you create a business. It's not for paying 150 bucks to start up an LLC. It's the operating agreement that controls your business while you're alive. And then when you pass away, there's a seamless transition to whoever you want your business to go to when you pass. Wow. This is jam-packed. Now we get into the fun stuff here. I mean, because how many people do that, right? No, very few. I mean, it, it's, it's unfortunate. And like, it's sad because the, the biggest, unfortunately, in today's society, the biggest creditor tends to be a spouse an ex-spouse where create a company and in the state of Florida, like most yeah. most states, where wow. if, if I create a company and then my wife and I get divorced, she owns half that company. Right. That's why you have to have a good operating agreement that will allow, you know, your partner to basically have the first bite at the apple to buy her interest out where she won't be able to control the company. So what does that look like on the divorce side of things? As you have businesses, that's a thing, mm-hmm. the big thing. And you would think back, I mean, gosh, if you thought back in the 40s and 50s, 
No one ever thought of gotten divorced. Right, of course. They always went and they fixed it. Now it's like like brand new TV. <laughs> People are getting divorced left and right. Right, right, right. COVID sped it up but slowed it down. Michelle and I were, were talking about friends of ours that we knew were kind of in that, that position. Yeah. Cheaper to keep her type right, scenario. Right, 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 not, right. And it, cheaper to keep him too. It, it, it goes both right, ways there. But how do you deal with that? That's really, that's interesting to me because I'm sitting there going, okay, so yeah. you have a business, you have, or just a, a discontinuation with a partner. It doesn't have to be yeah, yeah. man-wife. Like, right, right, right. How do you even start that process? I mean, it's it's a tough process. I mean, you know, just because people get divorced doesn't mean they have to be adversary to each other. So right. a lot of it is not just trust in your partner, but trust, well, if things just aren't going to work out with my partner and me, we both have the common sense to say, listen, fighting only makes the attorneys money. We have a set amount of assets that this company is worth. Mm -hmm. We have a set amount of assets that our retirement plan works. And if we have kids, we have kids. It's not worth us fighting for because in reality, the losers are us and most importantly, your kids. Mm. So listen, divorce, yes, it's up then as opposed to where it was in the 40s and 50s, but it's still a reality of life. So even sure. if you have to go through a divorce, just make sure to not be spiteful, not let anger grow because you are going to hurt yourself your spouse, and most importantly, your kids, if you fight it, because the only people making money will people like me, mm -hmm. well, I, I don't do divorce law, but attorneys, then you're taking away many times hundreds of thousands of dollars from your children. I have several close friends where one spouse was just, just for whatever reason, wanted to fight. And, you know, at the end of the day, they spent $200,000 in oh. attorney's fees and accountants. It's like, that's $200,000 that's not going to your kids. You know, like who cares if your wife or your husband gets a little bit more or a little bit less? If you trust that person, they're probably going to be smart and spend it on the kids. So like, is it really going to them? Yeah. yeah so, yeah. you know, that's what I would say about that. But that's another reason that, listen, you can trust someone and they can change. That's why you have to have a strong operating agreement. So if there's a business that's owned by a husband and a wife mm -hmm. and it's mainly the brainchild of the husband or mainly the brainchild of the wife and there's other partners involved as well, then that person has the ultimate discretion of buying the other person out or making sure that that other person can't control the business. Mm. Here's another one. Emancipation of a child in, from a family. What does that look like? I'm trying to throw some, some curveballs here to figure out. Meaning like, like a, a child that's like 16 or 17 yeah, that wants to Yeah, just, they're like, hey, man, like I'm done with this family. I have my own rules and standards I'm going to mm -hmm. live by. I want to go out and go surf for the rest of my life, and I'm out. But they're part of a will. Yeah. Now, it's kind of, God, what's that old uh, proverb or example in the Bible where they, uh, the, you know, the the kid left home and he came back. The father took him in. Oh, whatever. Yeah, I'll, yeah, I'll yeah. I think I, I kind of know what you're talking about. Yeah. So, but the, anyways, the kid leaves. Uh -huh. They want to come back. They spent all their money. One scenario. But before that, they leave and they're like, I'm just done. But they're yeah. part of this estate right. plan. Like, well, how does that I'll, I'll go both out? ways. Like in this day and age, most people still don't have a will or a trust. So many by, people. By what percentage? I mean, from the wills and trusts that I do, I'd say about 50% of the people just don't have a will or trust. And that means that you die intestate, which means without a will. Most states follow the same guidelines. It's all strictly by statute, and it has nothing to do with whether or not a spouse is alienated, whether or not you've even seen them for 10 years. I had one client that I just signed up, and she's going to get a nice windfall 
her husband and she have been estranged for 10 years. She doesn't even live in Florida. She found out that he passed away. He had a girlfriend, but he didn't have a will. The girlfriend gets nothing. She gets everything because in the state of Florida, if you are married and you don't have a will, doesn't matter. There's no such thing as parole evidence or anyone saying, hey, listen, this guy hated this person. Or even if they even filed the divorce, if the divorce isn't final, everything goes to the spouse. Really? And back to your question about kids. So if you have a kid that, that you don't want in your will or don't want to get anything, unless you specifically put it in a will, this is assuming you don't have a spouse. Mm-hmm. If you don't have a spouse, all of your assets are divided equally per stirpes to your children. What per stirpes means is, let's just say you have three kids, Mm -hmm. but one of them passed away. But before they passed away, they had two children. His third would go to the two children, and then the other two thirds would go to the other two kids of yours. That's why it's important to always have an estate plan because there's people that legally will get your assets unless you specifically put something in a will. Now, there's one, one good thing in Florida. In Florida, you can't take your spouse out of a will. So even if your spouse, you hate your spouse and you just don't want to get a divorce and you, you create a will that says everything is going to my kids, your mm-hmm. spouse can take her elective share. She has to get 40% of your estate. So if you are married, your spouse has to get at least 40% of your estate. Wow. All right. But if you don't have a will, she gets it all. Why are 50% of the people not covering them their asses? I mean, why do people do a lot of things in life? And if they're in different states, I mean, there's a whole list of questions that are coming up now. What state takes precedence? Where they got married, where they live? It's where they have a domicile at the time of death. But also that brings up other issues too, because it's also where they have property. Where I had a client who unfortunately passed away from COVID. He was one of the first people. He was actually a doctor and he had a decent amount of assets. But he had a property up in New York. Mm -hmm. We don't have the jurisdiction in Florida or any other state really to probate real property outside the state of Florida. So we could do everything to probate his property in Florida. But eventually, they're going to have to hire a New York attorney to probate that one property up in New York. So that's a good question. So you can wow. you can probate, and this is another thing why it's important to have a revocable trust. Like here's a doctor. He was 70 years old and he did not have, wait, I take that back. He had a will, yeah. but he hadn't updated it in 30 years. And since then he had gotten divorced, had other children. So it was a mess and it probably really wasn't what he wanted. But unfortunately that was the last will that he had and he never had a revocable trust. There were a lot of costs and fees involved in probating that. I would imagine. (laughs) You know, when if he had just done a revocable trust, yeah, it would have cost several thousand dollars to do the revocable trust, but you're saving your children, your beneficiaries, or whoever you want your assets to go to, a lot of money and time and attorney's fees. Yeah, yeah. I I didn't completely answer your question about what goes into a uh, standard estate plan. Sure. I I said a pour over will Mm -hmm. and then revocable trust. And there's other things that everyone needs that most people don't have as well. One is what's called a durable power of attorney, mm. which means that, that if you are in an accident and you're unable to make financial decisions for yourself, you're nominating this person to go and sign documents for you, to take care of bank accounts, to do whatever. And a durable power of attorney, 
literally there's like 25 or 30 different things that are listed and you can initial each one that you want that durable power of attorney to take care of. Mm-hmm. It's less important for married people to have than single people because if you're single and let's just say you have a longtime girlfriend, that longtime girlfriend would literally be the same thing as me where I can't make any decisions for you because you don't have, you're not legally married mm-hmm. and you don't have a document that says this person can make the financial decisions for you. Mm-hmm. And then a similar vein, but for healthcare purposes, is a healthcare surrogate. You know, if you're married, it's not as necessary. It's, it's necessary for like, if God forbid something happens to both you and your wife and your wife's unable to make the financial or the healthcare decisions for you, you want who's next in line. You know, your mm-hmm. daughters don't automatically have that, that power. So you would have to list which daughter you would want to make these decisions for you. And then if she's unavailable, who next? Or if you don't want your daughters to make the financial decisions, you want a sister or a close friend. You put that in the durable power of attorney. Something okay. happens. Both the parents pass away. How do they know you have a revocable estate plan? They don't. That's another thing that's important where... It's not like a deed for a piece of property where you can look up on a public record to see who owns a piece of property or you can go to the DMV and see who owns a car. And it's good that way because it provides anonymity where you don't want it to be a public record of what's in your trust. What's but, in but your, who, like, so something happens. So that, that, that's back to the, what I talked about before. Like it's good to have, whether you're old fashioned, what, like a notebook, whether you have a computer file or in the cloud where you need to let them know, listen, this is our attorney. Mm-hmm. This is a copy of our estate plan. This is where the original estate plan is. Mm-hmm. This is what you need to look at, you know, when we pass away. I just thought of a great sponsor for this show is LastPass because that's all, all your password records. Yeah. You can have everything that's listed right there and go through it. I don't know if they will or not, but we'll certainly reach out to them and say, hey, <laughs> you know, cool. do that, right? I'm thinking sitting there, going, okay, well, fine. Something happens. Who knows? You well, have that, that's three, another you have question too because back to the situation of the unfortunate doctor who passed away, some of his kids were like, I know he created another will. I know he did. He told me, he told me, but like he didn't say where he put it or whether or not. Yeah, well, so you have to go with, the last document that you have. Right. So um, that is a major situation where a lot of people, they're just naturally, they don't like to think about death and they think, okay, well, this is great. And they just go to an attorney and then they prepare all the documents and then they get like a nice binder from the attorney. But if they don't tell their daughter or their husband or whatever, <laughs> and no one know, I mean, the attorney's not going to look on the obituaries to see who passed away. You know, so there's really no way of knowing at so, times, like whether or not the person has a will. Angie just said that. She goes, Yeah, let's explain kind of what we're doing. And she comes over and she's like, Dad. And I go, Whoa, 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 hold on. Just hear us out. Like, you need to know this. Right, right. <laughs> right. But you're talking about death. I'm like, I get it. <laughs> but you need to know uh-huh. this because you're in line. And if you don't know it, guess what? You could be missing out bigly. And she's like, right. Okay. And another important thing about, I mean, I, I know you got four girls. Uh, if God forbid you and Michelle pass away, you need to have in writing who you want to take care of your kids, be their Well, that was the scenario I gave you with because, like A, B, well, well, that, that. Yeah, I mean, but this is not necessarily taking care of the money, but like literally who they're going to live with, you know, who is going to take care of them because there's going to be – one mom saying, well, you know, I want to take care of them. And we, then the other grandma saying, I want to take care of them. Well, so me, you need to have that in writing where... Let me paint you what we sure. what we talked about then because it, it addresses exactly yeah. that. So the immediate person is moving into this house. Okay. 
End of story. They agreed. They said, yes. We said, this is the plan. Do you agree? Yes. She'd move right in. Right. Um, so, so then from there, once the primary custodian now moves in, uh-huh. they know that they need to move here. So that was the one thing that we said that was kind of like the precursor to uh, the couple of different scenarios that we thought we figured out. The adult A1, not the immediate, if something happened to them based on their age, Mm-hmm. We have a reserve, like someone behind there to say, right, okay, right. who else would jump in? It's an alternate, yeah. Uh, an alternate, right? So we have yep. all that covered. But, hey, you need to move into this house because right, right. we're assuming the girls are going to be under 18, if they're over 18. And yeah. then we just told the girls, too, when we were talking about those, we said, look, if something happens to your mom and I, you should live here as long as you can because you will live rent-free. And, so, and the system's brutal. I mean, the taxes and everything else, you should live as rent-free as long yeah. as you can to get yourself established and then you have financial freedom at that point. Right. And another thing, like you know, obviously this is your homestead. In the state of Florida, homesteads are also protected from your children's creditors. So let's just say they you had you oh, owed someone a lot of money. Yeah, yeah. And it wasn't like a credit card company or a bank that most likely go away. They wanted blood. They wanted that money back. Yeah. They can't get legally any and all of the amount of money that you have invested in your homestead is protected. Your kids will not have to worry about selling their house and giving the proceeds to your creditors. Give us an example of some stories. That's what I really want to get at is like, what are some of the greatest stories you've heard of? It was designed this way and it lived up to its its level of enthusiasm or it sucked and the people didn't do what we said. And here's what happened as a result of it. Right. Well, this kind of leads me to another type of law. I do. I also do bankruptcy Mm -hmm. where I graduated from law school in 04 and then you know, a lot of people. Were, UF fan, by the way. Yep. Yeah. Go Gators. <laughs> a lot of my friends were struggling in 08 and 09 with first recession that we had, most recent first recession that we had. And they were literally relying on credit cards. I had a young couple that just got married, you know, right after college. They had a couple of kids. And between the two, husband and wife, they had amassed like $200,000 in credit card debt. Wow. But the beauty of bankruptcy is that you can discharge credit card debt. You can't discharge student loans. But we were able to get them in a bankruptcy, a Chapter 7 bankruptcy, and all that credit card debt is discharged. Mm. And uh, the beauty about bankruptcy, it literally only takes a couple of years for you to get back on your feet where you can start getting credit cards in the mail again, you know, not having a horrible credit score. They were fortunate enough where they bought their own house early before they had these struggles. So they didn't have to worry about going through bankruptcy, and then having to worry about renting a place with a low credit score. They had their home they could stay at. So bankruptcy is a beautiful option for people that have had bad life choices or just had unfortunate circumstances with jobs and things like that, where if you get into a lot of credit card debt, one thing is all debt's not created equal. Credit card debt is the easiest debt to get rid of if you can file bankruptcy. Also, they tend to... I'm throwing some big ones at you next, yeah. by the way. <laughs> they, they tend come. to negotiate very liberally as well, where they know that if you file bankruptcy, they'll get nothing or pennies on the dollar, where I've had clients that have had sixty, seventy thousand $70,000 worth of credit card debt, and they hire me to negotiate, and we settle at three, dollars $4,000. So having credit card... Versus claiming car- bankruptcy. Yeah, because a lot yeah. of people don't want to file bankruptcy and they're like, okay, well, I'll give the credit card company some money more than they would receive in a bankruptcy. So there's uh, reasons that the credit card companies would take it. So ultimately, credit card debt is not as disabling as you may think, but it does 
require you to take a heavy hit with your credit score or have to file bankruptcy. But one question and I always get from people like, oh, well, if I file bankruptcy, you know, won't it lower my credit score by 100 points? I was like, listen, it may even lower it by 200 points. But here's the scenario. Would you rather have $100,000 that you have to pay back or have 200 points less on your credit score and not have to pay that $100,000 back? Right. Easy yeah, answer, yeah, yeah. you know. So it's, it's very easy to get your credit score. And there's companies, there's a lot of credit card companies that you have to worry about, like, oh, we'll increase your credit score. They're just scams, but there are some good ones that can really help your credit score out. Who would be the best ones? Off the top of my head, I, I do not know. Who are the I worst have, ones? Because <laughs> you, you remember the negative stuff. You know, I, I don't want to disparage anyone. And also, I just don't recall, like, the names of any of the, the poor ones. But you just have, just do your research before you. What you should know. be some of the questions then that people would ask? Just start with Google, you know, just start with, uh, you know, going on the Business Bureau, uh, just making sure that there's there's not that many negative reviews. And also, remember, there's only so much that they can do as well. If they're asking a lot of money, just it, it's probably a red flag. The main thing is it's not rocket science either. It's just, hey, you know, lower your the amount of money that you owe on your credit card. Start a new credit card where this one is the, your primary one that you always pay on time. You don't have that much debt. So there's little things like that you can do as well. So I'm going to tap into bankruptcy. We have a gentleman, his name is Roger Jansen. And one of the leading questions that we went in there was like medical bankruptcy. Number one reason for bankruptcy in the United States of America. Yeah, right. that's true. What I found out, I don't know shit about it, but what I found out is that medical bankruptcy slash bankruptcy is all in one pile of mess. There is no delineation as far as what I've read online, that there's a category for these types of bankruptcies. Bankruptcy is bankruptcy. Well, there's bankruptcy is bankruptcies, but there's just different types of bankruptcies. You have chapter seven bankruptcy, which is just pure liquidation. Your debt completely outweighs your assets and you just want to get rid of all of your debt. You don't want to have to come up with a payment plan to pay anyone back and whatever assets you have, the trustee will take divvy up, the trustee will get his portion, and then the creditors will get pennies on the dollar. That's chapter seven. That's what most people think of when they think of bankruptcy. But I want to dive into this medical bankruptcy Right. And then with that, you know, most people are in chapter seven bankruptcy because they have $300,000 worth of medical debt and they can't get rid of it. But the fortunate thing is, is medical debt is similar to credit card debt where it's at the bottom of the totem pole. If student loans at the top of the totem pole, it's very easy to get rid of your medical debt. If you file bankruptcy, your medical debt will be discharged. Is there a way to claim or to deal or handle medical bankruptcy without claiming bankruptcy? Or would they be handled the same way that it's explained with the credit card company? Yeah, I mean, a lot of those, who knows how some medical facilities and hospitals and doctors come up with you know, what they're charging you. Yeah. Us lawyers, we, we, we joke about it all. Like when a client comes in, we speak and they ask, well, how much is it going to cost? And I either give them a flat fee or say, okay, I'll charge X amount per hour. And here's a idea of how many hours it will take. And then when they get the bill, they're not going to be too shocked because we had that conversation beforehand. Mm -hmm. It doesn't work that way for medical professionals, especially when you're dealing with insurance companies, you know, one procedure could cost X amount to this one person because they had this one type of insurance and it could cost X amount to this person because they didn't have insurance, but it would cost Y amount for this person because they didn't have insurance, but they are considered indigent. So there's no rhyme or reason to it. So you could go in for what you think is a standard emergency room 
visit and you're getting a bill for $15,000 that you can't take care of. Many times if you call the hospitals and you speak to the right person, they can work out a payment plan for you because they know that they ain't suing. Like doctors don't sue, very rarely sue people over medical debt. It's one of those things that's constantly a thorn in your side. It's going yeah. to be, you're going to get harassing phone calls, you're going to get letters, it's going to affect your credit. So you need to come up with some sort of payment plan. I've had clients where they owe tens of thousands of dollars and they called up and they're taking 200 bucks a month because the hospital knows like, well, better get 200 bucks until nothing, right? nothing until they stop paying us, but at least we've got some money or until they file bankruptcy. Well, here's something that drives me crazy. I mean, literally bonkers. I remember we had a gentleman on the show, Brian Dorick, mm-hmm. and he actually was the physician I saw for my colonoscopy. It was my scheduled, right? here's what you need to get. Here's what's getting. Okay, no problem. Great. Call the, uh, the nurse. She handled all the insurance. Everything's covered. You're approved. We're good to go. My question, everything's covered. Yes. How much do I pay? Your copay, sir. Oh, wonderful. Everything's covered. Yes. <laughs> now, I get agitated that our phones don't have a record button yeah, yeah, <laughs> on yeah. them, right? So next thing I know, I get a bill for 80 bucks, uh-huh. right? Now, it's from this anesthesia company. Right, right, right. They're the freaking worst. They're the worst. Yeah. I'm now going back and forth, and I had... This, I have this letter. It's like a fair medical balance act of whatever. That if you send them that, mm-hmm. it kind of puts a hold on everything, and they have to send you the proof, report yeah, and yeah. proof of all of it. So they sent me the invoice. I said, "No, please show me where I signed and accepted right. and was responsible for that." And there was nothing. There was crickets. I said, "Look, we can keep doing this back and forth, or we can settle now." I said. If you want 15 bucks, I'll give you 15 bucks. So I'm not paying you $85. Right, 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 I'm just right. not doing it. So they came back. No, no, you owe this money. I said, take me to court. I said, the filing fee is going right. to cost you more. So right. have fun. Now, that's that one. There's another scenario where I think like two or three years ago, I had this uh, little cyst uh, that was in my finger. It was like a little nodule. And the guy went in there and he took it out. And I'm having a discussion with him. He's like, man, that looks like an old poke, a puncture of something. Like you were working with your hands. I, said, I don't know what it was. But he went in there. And he took out a nodule here in my thumb and my finger. I get a $600 bill after. 600 bucks. Now, on top of this, same scenario. Now, I knew the nurse. I actually knew her because I worked with her at a different hospital for a different project. Hey, Alicia, everything good? We're good. You're good to go. What's my copay? 40 bucks. Great. Anything else? Nope, we're covered. $600 later. Now, Alicia had left. I didn't know where she went. Now I'm dealing with the business manager. So look, she told me, I actually still had the voicemail because I was using Google Voice at that time. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So luckily I had that. She goes, she misspoke. Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> so now I'm like laughing. at. I'm like, look, again, we can go back and forth. I'm not trying to avoid this. You need to go do some homework because it had the claim numbers. It had everything, the CPT codes, everything that was built in. Over around the corner, over at our CBS, uh, oh, yeah, we, yeah. we have the... Um, MD now. Yeah, yeah, MD yeah, now. Yeah, she is working. I said, <gasps> so when'd you get here? And so we're just going back and forth. So you do me a favor. Will you call that old doctor back? She goes, I told them, you call up that person, you tell them X. Bill went away. Yeah. <laughs> and all that story, how do you get out around or avoid well, that kind of stuff? It's, it's an unfortunate situation because so annoying. you may think like, oh, well, they went away. They haven't received phone calls, but they're going to be hitting your credit. They never hit my credit. Yeah. I mean, that you're, you're fortunate. But there's so many people that I know that have low credit scores because of a $300 medical bill that 
they didn't pay and they just thought it went away. So, But you can dispute that on the credit reports, right? Right, yeah. But it's just like, listen, if it's, is it worth your time and money? The time is money. If it's a few hundred bucks, try to work out something with them. And if they don't want to work it out, like, listen, I'd rather pay a couple hundred bucks than have to worry about them going after my credit. So mm. it's just a cost-benefit analysis. And uh, it's unfortunate that the medical companies work that way, but it's just, it's just a reality of life. So when you've, have you dealt with medical bankruptcy before? Yeah, of course. I mean, okay. it's just, as you said, it's just bankruptcy with just a lot of medical debt, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So now when you've gone through, I'm really interested in this, this sure. answer. This is, okay. this yeah. is going to be kind of like a, kind of a pinnacle moment in yes. this, this conversation. <laughs> when you look at the reimbursable amount uh-huh. from the modality company, so that could be diagnostics, that could be uh, lab tests right, right. versus what they're charging the patients. Let me make this a little bit clearer. There is a bill. The hospital says 10000 is owed for this procedure. Yep. They first mail that out to insurance. Insurance says, based on that CPT code, we're going to give you $0.30 cents on the dollar. Yep. That's reimbursable. That's what they do. Yep, yep. Okay? But they charge you 100%. Yeah. What happens now? Well, I'll say to the hospital, yeah. I mean, how much did you get reimbursed? What was the reimbursement percentage? Yeah. I will pay that. Yeah. By the time they're at the bankruptcy route, they owe so much money mm-hmm. that the beauty of bankruptcy is you don't have to delve into like, well, what is the amount that they were reimbursed? What were they not reimbursed? All you have to do is I went to Boca West Medical Center and you list them as a creditor. You list their address. You don't even have to put the full amount of their claim. You can just say, listen, I think it's $5,000. I think it's 10000 whatever. Wow. They're put on notice. And then their debt will be discharged if you get a Chapter 7 bankruptcy. That's why the most important thing about bankruptcy Mm -hmm. is not knowing to the exact dollar what you owe, but who you owe the money to. Because the rule is you just list all the creditors and it's their job to put what's called a proof of claim in saying, Mm -hmm. this is what we're owed. You then at that point can dispute it. But it's really, there's really no point of disputing debt in Chapter 7 bankruptcy because no one's getting any money anyway because most people have no assets mm-hmm. or all the assets they have are protected. Like you could file bankruptcy with a $3 million home and as long as you didn't make more than $165,000 in payments the last couple of years, you can keep your home and get rid of all your debt. You know, Florida and many other states are, wow. are very beautiful in what they allow debtors to have. Where in the state of Florida, you can have a million bucks in your 401k. That's protected. You can file bankruptcy. And if you have an account that's owned by you and your wife, all your debt, they can't get to that money. So there's, that, that's why like, a lot of what I do is actually bankruptcy avoidance planning or pre-bankruptcy planning, where there's so many nuances and rules in the state of Florida where you can protect your money and file bankruptcy, and they're not getting that. Wow, that's how is that allowed? Is well, that cheating? I mean, listen, it's not cheating because it's the rules. Right. You know, it may be unfair, but that's why you also have to know the rules of the game. And that's why you go to an attorney that knows what, what they're doing, what the rules are. Yeah. Where, yeah, it, it makes no rhyme or reason where I could have $200,000 in a bank account that's just in my name mm-hmm. and I file bankruptcy. The trustee is going to start licking his lips and like, oh, I got $200,000. A trustee gets about 10% of that. And then, Mm -hmm. of course, everything else is distributed. 
if I would have consulted an attorney and he just said, Ray, you're married, go to the bank, open up an account that's called husband and wife, tenants by the entirety, I can have $200,000 there and I can file bankruptcy. The trustee can't get any of that money. Or if I have $200,000 and I put it in a 401k, and when I mean put it in there, you can't transfer it the day beforehand. But if you're instead of keeping your money in just a savings account, you're mm-hmm. keeping your money and every month you're putting it into a 401k, you're putting it into the account with your wife. Yeah. They can't touch that. And the reason behind it is it's actually, you know, I think it's it's a smart reason where they did not want families to go destitute. So they encourage you to invest in things that are going to help out you and your family. Mm-hmm. That's why the homestead is where they didn't want people to owe money to creditors and then for that creditor to take the house that they're raising their two-month-old, their wife that doesn't work. They said, listen, we don't care if you owe the money. That situation is not fair. And that's going to be a burden to the state of Florida because how are we going to house and yeah. feed someone whose creditor can come and take their house? So it's a risk assessment on both levels. Right. So the state yeah. of Florida is like, listen, we don't think that's fair. That's why that your homestead's exempt. 401k, they want people putting in money for their retirement. Yeah, you made some bad mistakes and someone lent you $50,000, you can't pay it back. But this money is for you when you retire. We don't want you to be a burden on the state and have no money when you retire. So that's protected. You know, health savings accounts are protected. They want people to have money. So, hey, if you need to have uh, money for procedures or for to go to the doctors, you have that money. Yeah, yeah. You know, so that's the theories behind it. You know, some of it, there's no rhyme or reason to it. Like if I'm married and I can just put, even though it's all my money, I can put it in an account that has my wife's name on it. Mm-hmm. My creditors nor her creditors can get to that can money. Get to it. One of my earlier, uh, more favorite podcasts, 0.1%, uh, uh-huh. Simon Simonoff, he talked about that exactly. He's like, what happens to people is they don't pre-plan well yeah. enough and something happens, a trauma in these debts. And you're living fine, but you don't have enough to take care of other folks and those specific reasons yeah. you just spoke about. So that's why, I mean, people think going to attorney, you just need it if if there's a crisis situation. Yeah, yeah. But remember, we say we're attorneys and counselors at law, where many of my clients come to me, the ones that get the best bang for your buck is if you don't have a situation. If you say, listen, I'm happily married, I don't have any debt, but I'm in a business where I could get sued, or I do have a risk with the investments that I'm doing, I want to make sure to protect myself. So if God forbid, I get sued or I get in a car accident and insurance isn't covered or my insurance lapsed, they can't come and take my assets. You know, so then we do that type of planning as a counselor to them, not like a a attorney because you think of attorney, oh, that's, you know, you're in litigation, you're getting sued. No, I I do a lot of that with pre-bankruptcy planning as well, where people come to me and they're a lot in debt. But I'm like, listen, you can't file bankruptcy now because the trustee will take all these assets. But if we come up with a plan where we start putting assets in certain vehicles and certain LLCs and certain bank accounts in a year, you can file bankruptcy and your exposure will be significantly less. Wow. So on that note, if someone wanted to get going, get started, right? right? Now, I don't want to say do the packages that are out there. Like, What's the minimum cost that they can expect to spend to get themselves covered and get them prepared for uh, any kind of scenario that may pop up they're not prepared for? Uh, in terms of like estate planning or, or in terms of... Let's say, I would say 
what I'm thinking of right now is estate planning and pre-bankruptcy planning because you never right, know right. financially what's going to happen. So if another 2009 happens or right, the COVID, right, right. no one was prepared for those right. things. They didn't see it coming. Well, some did and most didn't. Yeah. Depending on what market you're in, like how much is that going to say? Sure, hey, sure. I'm cover myself and right. You know, the basic estate plan that I talked about that has the uh, revocable trust, the pour over will, the durable power of attorney, the healthcare surrogate, the pre need guardian, the HIPAA authorization. You're looking for about a flat fee of about thirty five hundred dollars to take care of that. Okay. And then for pre-bankruptcy planning. And it's going to save probably 35000 on the it, other it end save, at least. I mean, it could save the, – the law is 3.5% of your assets. So right. sometimes it won't if you don't have that many assets. But most people have at least $100,000 in assets. And that's kind of the point where you're making money by doing the revocable trust. Mm-hmm. If you have over $100,000 worth of assets because you know 3.5% of $100,000 is $3,500. Right. And then for pre-bankruptcy planning – a lot of it is just, it could be very simple. I mean, you know, that's more of just like I kind of do an a la carte charge by the hour where they come to me and if they need, you know, three, four hours of my time to try to set up the proper accounts, give them education on the homestead or LLCs, things like that. You know, you're talking about, you know, 1500 bucks to set up an LLC that has a proper operating agreement, talking about $2,500, $3,000 flat fees. And with things like this, I like... Mm to do a flat fee because I want my client to know exactly what they're getting into so Mm -hmm. they can budget it, but also knowing that most attorneys charge by the hour where they can call me, they can email me, and I'm not going to be like, oh, okay, I'm charging 0.3 because I took your phone call. Like, no, my flat fee is my fee and it includes, you know, me speaking to your CPA, me responding to your emails, you having follow-up questions. As long mm. as you don't take advantage of it, I'm obviously not going to take advantage of it. You know, it, it's the best way so people both sides know what they're getting into and what the costs are and what it entails. Do you find that some people are I'm trying to think of a good word, embarrassed or have choked up throat telling you all this information going back and forth? I think that's one back to your reason about like people not having wills or trust. It's yeah, people don't want to talk about death. You know, people don't want to think about I'm oh, combining man. bankruptcy in that conversation though. Now. Okay. Yeah. So I mean there's a lot of information yeah. they have to spill to you. Yeah. No, right? it, it is. And that you know, that's one thing I, I tell all my clients. I say, listen, I understand it may be difficult for you to tell me some bad financial decisions you made that cost you a lot of money, but you're hurting yourself by not telling me. I'm your advocate. I'm the one that's supposed to analyze your situation. I'm mm. unable to if you don't tell me the truth. It's unfortunate where most people are pretty candid with bankruptcy because by the time they've come to me, they've gotten over their issues with maybe talking about their debt, you know, because yeah. they, they took that step. They're at my office, they're signing up, you mm. know. But I still have that spiel with them. Uh, but other situations where there's litigation, I always say, listen, you need to tell me both sides of the story. Yeah, yeah. Don't just come in here telling me your sob story about this, how this person ripped you <laughs> off and everything like that, because yep. I'm sure he has a story. Mm-hmm. And if I don't know that story, I don't want to be bamboozled by the other side when they're like, oh, well, this is what your client did to my client. And this is why he owes my client this much money. You need to tell me yeah. so I can prepare our defenses. <laughs> the word counselor that. makes perfect sense now. <laughs> right. Because you're probably going in there and 
gosh, how many conversations have you have offline? Just like, hey, in issues yeah. into something else, yeah. right? Wow, amazing. Yeah. All right, so folks, we're going to wrap it up there. Ray lives down the street. Would you like to come back? Sure. Cool. He's coming back. <laughs> He's at it. All right, so before we go, uh, you can find uh, Ray at noblelawfirmpa.com. Uh, we'll put his direct contact information in there as well. I use Ray. I trust Ray, uh, which is why we're coming back to Ray. Beautiful family. If you live outside the state, you can still reach out to him. If he can't fulfill that answer, he has a huge network of people he can rely on. Thank you for being here. Thank you all for listening. We'll see you for another episode. Take care. Thank you, Scott. It was cool, man. Good job. Those were good questions. That was easy. That's what Michelle said. It's just a conversation. Well, Fletcher is just a very personable guy. Michelle told me a while ago, so not in, from the beginning, but mm-hmm. midway through, I was like, man, I got to study for this person. Yeah, yeah. Right? And I had to go in there and I'm like, all right, what about, what about? And I'm like, and Michelle, she goes, look, stop doing, do what you used to do. Yeah, yeah. So now I go into it, have a general understanding. Uh huh. And really with like this childlike curiosity. Yeah. And I try to put myself in the position of people of what would they be asking you? Right, right. Versus them like, man, I wish I had that question. So most of it's getting answered right then and there. And then any kind of follow-up or anything specific, yeah. they reach out to you. you know? That's great. Race candor is very much appreciated and exactly what the best and brightest ordered. Priceless stories and insights that's worth the price of admission. Please don't hesitate to contact Ray. You can find him once again at noblelawfirmpa.com. Please tell me you have a head start because you had heard it here first on Healthcare 360. From all of us with the Healthcare 360 team, we thank you. We'll see you for episode number 93. See you there.